Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. We are going to get to uh, a guest I've been looking forward to for a while. Nick Colas joins us, co-founder of Datatrek Research, and he was one of my favorite guests um, when I used to anchor out of New York. Um, Nick, it's your notes that I really loved. Uh, I, I used to be on your mailing list. I feel like I got kicked off at some point along well, the yeah, way. I don't know if that was on purpose. It's a high bar there, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta be. The commissions have to be there. But uh, but um, today you you come to us with a note with a with a survey. Really, the results of your bubble survey. You had about four hundred people um, take the survey to tell you you know if they're seeing bubbles, what a bubble is, which bubbles are most concerning. What was your big uh, takeaway, Nick, from from the note from the survey? Sorry. Yeah, well, first of all, we'll certainly put you back on the press list for the product <laughs> and, and apologize for, 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 the, for the omission. Um, the bottom line on this survey was really interesting because what we asked people, we asked people a couple of different directions and asked them where they see bubbles. And 85 plus percent of people do see bubbles in the market. And these are professional investors, high net worth individuals, people who understand markets. 85, 82 percent see there's a bubble somewhere. The, by far the biggest one was Bitcoin. They called out Bitcoin <laughs> by orders of magnitude more than any other thing. So 280 votes for Bitcoin and being in a bubble out of 400. The next le- next one up, 96 votes for U.S. large caps, 64 votes for U.S. small caps. But So stocks a little bit, but Bitcoin a lot. Hey, Nick, you know, you and I have been in this business a long time, and you kind of have a similar history here in terms of time in the business. What do you make of SPACs? SPACs are something that we've seen in various forms over the years, but boy, have they just exploded onto the marketplace. They have exploded, and we did ask about SPACs in the survey, and, and the majority of respondents did see SPACs as emblematic of a larger bubble in certain parts of tech. Look, underlying SPACs is a good fundamental thing, which is maybe the IPO process is a little bit broken and VCs have to find other ways to monetize their assets. Totally fair. But I think the enthusiasm over SPACs is way overdone because they so often link to electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, things like that. That gets people all juiced up and it does create a bit of a bubble in that segment of the equity market for sure. I, uh, I don't suppose anyone mentioned NFTs. Did you see that, uh, Nick, people are paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy NBA moments, which are just actually <laughs> video clips connected to a digital token that you don't even really own? Yeah, I I did a piece on NFTs for our clients last night. It really is like, it reminds me a lot of, I don't know if you all remember CryptoKitties, the Ethereum product back in 2018. It's the same company, dude. It's the same company. Dapper Entertainment started the kitties and then the NBA hired them to do these moments on Top Shot. You know, God bless them. They figured out a way to pull some money out of the system, which is which is great. I just thought, like, hey, Matt, you're a car guy. What if GM were to, un, you know, to sell... Um, 15-second clips of the first Corvette launch at the Waldorf in New York in 1953. Well, Some exactly. Corvette or Ford, the Mustang, when they unveiled it yeah. on the Empire State. This is the idea. And they, they could do that. And the idea would be that you got the only you know, uh, authentic version, but anyone else can just get the clip on YouTube. Right. But the, the Corvette guy, the Mustang guy, he's going to want the original. 
because he just spent three hundred grand for his original fifty-three vet. He's going to want to spend a hundred grand for the original video clip. This right. I got to rip up the script for a second here. We can do that uh, in my Tom Keen. Um, are you a bigger fan of the C1 Corvette? A great example was in the movie Less Than Zero. Or yeah. of the C2, the split window is the one I love. Uh, which, Nick, which do you think is, uh, or do you like one of the newer ones? Look, I love the latest one. Flat the out C8, love it. Yeah. I think that's a, Unbelievable. that's a great concept, and I'm so glad they finally moved to mid-engine. Other than that, you got to go back to the original. you got to go back to the source waters. you got to go back to Lake Victoria, the whole thing, and it's the C1. Wow. All right, so we're talking about expensive cars here. We're talking about rare cars. So, Nick, when a client asks you to write up a note and do some research on these NBA clips, I mean, what does that tell you? Well, it tells me that there's a lot of attention and there are – look, I mean, this is one of those things where you can make a lot of money very quickly if you happen to be in the right space. If you're in the art gallery space, if you're in the creative space, there's a shot here. And there's some heavy money behind this. And Dreesen Horowitz wrote yeah. up a large blog entry on this very thing. And if you listen to Mark and Ben's um, Clubhouse chat a couple weeks ago, mm-hmm. it very clearly fits into a much larger scheme of a decentralized internet, which is like their big thing. So what I try I do for clients is just first of all say like yeah this is coming and if you happen to be in on this early you can make some money doing it no doubt about it people are doing it right now and there's some tangential things that big companies can do but more than anything just contextualize it as the silicon valley's very strong attempt and this will be going for the next 10 years to decentralize the net and get away from one aws one apple app store and try to figure out how to end run all the big tech giants that's what silicon valley and the vcs are trying to do so you used to be a banker too doing the same kind of things that well, Paul was doing it for, for media um, and telecoms, right? And you were doing yep. mostly the auto industry, Nick. Um, right. Uh, equity offerings, advising on M&A, et cetera. When, and, and that going into the internet bubble, do you see any similarities between what we're looking at now and then? Or is the, uh, are the time periods just too different to compare? No, there are similarities at the very highest level. And the similarity is the pandemic gave tech a huge boost, in the, both in stocks and in usage, just societal usage, the same way Internet 1.0 from 97 to 2000 did it for the first round of technology. And now we're beginning to see the rotation, which is very much like what it was in 2001 when dot-com began to blow up. I remember looking at Visteon, looking at Ford, looking at GM and thinking, why are these stocks up so much, even though we're clearly at the end of the cycle? It was just money leaving tech and having to go somewhere else. And that's what was happening. And that's what's happening again now. Like, you look at the Goodyear chart for the last couple of weeks. They're buying Cooper Tire, finally, which is awesome. But, man, that thing was just dead for months. And now it's coming back to life for the same way. So I think what you're seeing is money rotating out of tech and back into to older companies. And if you're just looking at it independently, you think, what is going on here? And that's what's going on. Money is leaving tech and going into basic industry and cyclicals. And we think that's going to continue. That's the way to make money this year. Hey, Nick, thanks uh, for joining us. We always appreciate getting your thoughts and your insight. Uh, we're always look forward to chatting with you. Nick Colas, co-founder, uh, Data Trek Research. Matt, Nick is just one of the smartest folks we talk to. Boy, every time we have him on, I learn a lot. And, and he's got taste. Yeah, he's got, he's got taste. And he likes now, I will disagree like. with him on the – I like the C2 Corvette better, but I – 
can admit that I don't have the greatest taste when it comes to these things. I know that Nick and I both share a love for Ducatis, and he has one of the um, coveted uh, sport classics, or he has the GT version, which oh, they nice. don't make anymore. So um, very I've good. always been very a little good. jealous. You guys got the car thing in. That, that's great. And you got the less than zero reference in there, which I totally got, and I'm totally <laughs> down with. That's good for that. <laughs> The SPACs are coming fast and furious. Dave Wilson, he brings us up to date on a daily basis on the new SPACs, and they're coming uh, from a wide variety of backers uh, and focusing on a wide variety of industries. It's kind of the new IPO, if you will, of uh, recent months. David DeWalt, he is the founder of a SPAC called Night Dragon. He is also the former CEO of FireEye and McAfee. Uh, they are SPAC supposed to start trading on the NASDAQ today. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we appreciate it. Talk to us about Night Dragon. What's the strategy here? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so, you know, when I was CEO of McAfee, ironically, uh, there was a famous cybersecurity attack called Night Dragon. And uh, my researchers then sort of said, hey, here's a uh, Here's one of those seminal moments in cybersecurity, and uh, they named it Night Dragon. But I always said if I ever built my own <laughs> thing, it would be called that. But, hey, listen, Night Dragon's a whole platform. We've been working hard as a team the last few years, um, you know, funding, investing into uh, cyber companies from incubators to early stage to now late stage kinds of companies. Um, really, the SPAC here, which is a, you know a new type of uh, product called the Scale, and we get into that. But really, we wanted to help create companies uh, a really efficient way to go public, and these would be top tier cyber safety type companies that we know well as a team, and we've known as you know public company executives, and help them get to uh, a high potential for shareholder value. Dave. Um, Night Dragon is an awesome name, first of all. <laughs> and you also have served as CEO of a number of other companies, including FireEye. That name totally rules. Um, McAfee isn't nearly as cool. I would have changed that. But the point is, you've got a ton of experience in this industry. And it was pointed out to me earlier that SPACs may be just a way for people who don't have, you know, $10 million to throw at um, BC Partners to get into private equity. Do you think that's along the right lines? Well, it certainly is, is, is one route, especially if we start to see the evolution that Spinning Eagle had, which is a SPAC platform, you know, a super SPAC platform. Wait, what's it called? It can do. There, there's there's new SEC rulings coming out that you could do a multitude of SPACs in one vehicle, yeah. and you could have two, three, four, five of them, and you could have small, medium, and large type companies you BCA into the, uh, the SPAC product. And so this is here to stay. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I mean, deal certainty, deal closure, you know, management afloat, managing short positions, you know, adding management teams into the board and advisors. You know, doing this with quality investors, quality, you know, leadership, and it looks like it's the right way to go, especially, especially if you have foreign national companies trying to come into the U.S. as well, and they want to use the listings and the investments as a way of gaining CFIUS approval or government U.S. access, uh, getting more open markets to, uh, especially in national security and cyber world. You know, these companies are often founded in Israel now or, you know, other parts of the world. In fact, you alluded to uh, FireEye. That company was founded in Pakistan. 
And, you know, we brought it to the United States and helped vet it. Uh, my other company, Forescout, was founded in uh, Israel. So, you know, being able to bring world-class technology to the world stage is a little what this operating team has been good at. And so we have a lot of different targets in mind, a lot of different opportunities, and uh, we think Night Dragon's a really nice Please uh, tell platform us. here to do it. Please tell yeah. us before you make the offer so we can front-run them. <laughs> uh, I'll try. <laughs> hey, Dave, yeah, no. what, what yeah. type of companies or technologies are you guys going to be focused on initially? Yeah, so you know our market segment. What we what we all know here as a collective team, uh, you know, 150 years of collective experience by this team, but we're focused on cyber safety, security, and privacy. I always like to say security from silicon to satellite. But the idea here is companies that really are in important threat areas. And let me just explain for a second. You know, wherever we see attackers really driving, uh, you know, successful breaches. What we try to do is build commercial defense to meet that threat. And we've identified 10 different sectors that have multi-billion dollar total addressable markets that we would like to target um, our work towards. And they can be everything from satellite LEOs with low Earth orbit satellites and now are connecting everything from your watch to your car to airplanes, like share safety security for Delta Airlines. Our aircraft are now connecting up in a ways and the security there, you know, needs to improve a lot. So there's really amazing space economy safety security opportunities, but all the way down to identity management, cloud security areas, social network. Uh, if anybody, uh, you know, watched the last, you know, four years, we know manipulated information, false information is, oh, yeah. you know, here to stay. How do we fix that problem? We have some really cool companies in our Night Dragon portfolio already, as well as ones we know that can come and meet these sector areas, and we can help take them to their full potential, we believe, Excellent. as a public company. Yep. Excellent. Dave, great to get some time with you. Fascinating stuff. Dave DeWalt there, who used to run uh, FireEye, McAfee, Documentum, now talking about his Night Dragon, SPAC. At the beginning of this lockdown, I was drinking a lot of beer and I was gaining weight and I was kind of tired and I thought, this is not a good idea. I've got to make a change in my life. So I started drinking wine instead. <laughs> I want to bring in right now Stephen Ranicleave, a global beverages strategist at Rabobank International to talk to us about the impact, um, maybe a little bit longer term than, than what I've experienced, of the uh, the the lockdowns, the pandemic on the wine industry. Um, Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. I'm assuming a lot of people are drinking more wine. Is that wrong? Well, you know that's. But first off, let me say I think you made a great switch, switching from beer to wine. That'll make a lot of clients that I deal with very happy. But you know, I think overall, when you look at it, people didn't really drink much more. What you saw was a huge shift in channels, right? So people, you know, they were. We know that restaurants were shut down, bars, restaurants shut down, and, you know, people were doing all their shopping at, at grocery stores. So when you looked at the numbers, the numbers that were put out oftentimes really just looked at grocery stores, and you saw this huge jump in sales, and everyone thought, oh, everyone's, you know, everyone's drinking a ton more. But really, it was just compensating for the loss of sales and the on-premise. And that, you know, but what was really important behind that is certain segments of the wine sector were hit worse than others because of it. Steve, talk to us about the financial 
health of the wine industry. I'm wondering if it's if it's like other industries that we've seen during this past year, where if you're a big company, good balance sheet, access to capital, you generally performed or fared better than maybe an independent player who maybe, again, doesn't have access to capital. Talk to us about the wine industry, how those players have uh, fared. Yeah, I think I think what you've laid out is a is a pretty fair assessment, and I should say, you know, it's 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 always a bit of a mixed bag. Even among some of the smaller players, if you had a really strong brand, really uh, clear identity in the market, you know, some of those players did really really well, didn't really miss a beat. But it was really on the whole, I would say it was, you know, larger wineries that have the national brands that have good access to to supermarkets and the big retail accounts. Those players did did much better. They fared much better in 2020 than than a lot of the smaller players that you know lost. Not only you know they lost out on sales in restaurants, but also you know a lot of the tasting room traffic. A lot of the the smaller guys depend on people traveling out to California and Oregon, visiting the winery, yeah. and you know and generating those sales. So those guys mm. got hit kind of you know on on both ends of that. So so when do you th- Steve? When does some of those wineries going to open up some of their tasting rooms? Just ask for a friend <laughs> <laughs> you know it's 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 been touch and go uh you know we're all kind of waiting i think we're all kind of looking at this and saying that by you know hopefully by summer we're getting back to to more normalized activity uh you know restaurants opening up tasting rooms and so forth and so you know i think 2021 will start to get back to some level of normalcy but it's going to take time you know and and especially on the restaurant side, you know, we've seen the numbers out of the National Restaurant Association. There are a number of, you know, there's a large swath of those those independent restaurants that are not going to fully recover. They're not yeah. going to reopen, right? So that really kind of creates some challenges and, and winners and losers within within the wine industry. Some, you know, some of these winers are going to be much more challenged than others. You know, I, w- I would, it's interesting. I would normally, if I wanted to um, go on a wine tasting, my dad loves the Silver Oak um, place out in in, uh, in Oakville, California. And so maybe we'd go out there. Um, but if we're stuck in lockdown in New York, my buddy uh, Neil Grossman has a vineyard now up by Millbrook. And I wonder if more people are trying their local wineries, local vineyards, just because they can't get to Napa Valley. Yeah, I think there's there's probably a fair amount of that, and there will be, right? It's We're, you know, moving back to, to visiting wineries and so forth. It's going to be a process. You know, we see some consumers, even with a vaccine, much more reluctant to travel. So I think there's going to be a little bit of that. But also, you know, one of the big winners in, in 2020 has been e-commerce, right? You've seen people shifting from from restaurant sales to buying online and you know they're finding their great wines and they can have those at home and you know so finding ways i think the challenge for the wine industry has been finding ways to connect with the consumer where they are hey steve you know there's so many independent wineries out there are they going to be are we going to see some consolidation in this industry because maybe some of those smaller weaker ones that uh, are going to be a little bit vulnerable here yeah, I think, you know, there's, there, we're certainly looking at and saying, you know, moving forward, we're seeing signs of consolidation. We put out a, a, a note, you know, a couple of uh, last month that said, you know, when you look at some of the signs, we're likely to see some consolidation. And we've already seen some really interesting moves, um, you know, where larger, reasonably sized wineries either going 
you know, the SPAC route. You saw the Vintage Wine Estates deal. Huh. That was, you know, that was a, a huge deal, $700 million deal, that, you know, merged with a SPAC. And, and you know, we had them, we had uh, the CEO, Pat Roney, on, on, on our podcast, and we kind of talked about some of what they were going through and and why the SPAC deal made sense. It was a really interesting move, right, this rise of SPACs yep. and how even that's playing in in the wine space. But even aside from that, you've had Duckhorn announce a, a, an IPO. You've had oh. Virgin Wines in the U.K. announce an IPO. And we've also seen kind of behind the scenes a lot of the larger wineries that have come through 2020 you know, in reasonably good condition, saying, hey, maybe this is a good time for us yep. to make some acquisitions, right? So it's an interesting, interesting time in the wine industry with a lot of uh, a lot right. of acquisitions. And, and uh, yeah, I think we'll see more in 2021. All right, Steve, thanks so much for joining us. We always appreciate it. Steve Rannick, leave Global Beverages Strategist at Rabobank, giving us the state of the global wine market. This pandemic has upended, has disrupted how we all work or how many people work uh, with many people being forced to work from home, changing our calendars, changing our work days. Now the question is, let's talk about that five-day work day. Is that something that needs to be looked at? Let's turn to Stefan Nicola, Bloomberg News in Berlin. Stefan, you've got a fascinating story here. The four-day work week gains popularity. What do we know? Yeah, it is gaining popularity around the world. Um, I talked with a CEO of a Berlin tech company, and they had trialed a 4.5-day work week after the pandemic really put a lot of stress on, on its workers. And what they found out is that sales rose, employee satisfaction rose, and client happiness rose. So in January, they decided to go for a four-day work week at full pay and full benefits. And the CEO told me the initial experience is really good. So first of all, um, Stefan, congratulations, because your story is the most read story (laughs) on the Bloomberg over the last eight hours. Seriously, there are thousands of stories on the Bloomberg, and his is the most read. So I think that's pretty awesome. Um, Also, I learned something that I didn't know, even as I'm an absolute Ford fanatic, um, just love the F-150. The Raptor is my favorite truck of all time. So, And I've been to Dearborn a ton, and I know the family and uh, the executives. I did not know Henry Ford was kind of the first person to give workers two days off a week. It used to be that workers only got Sunday off, and Henry Ford's idea, much like with the $5 workday, was if I give them two days off, they're going to have more reason to buy a car because they're going to need it for um, you know uh, driving around, hanging out. And he was right, and that caught on. So um, I think that's really cool. Stefan, are you hearing from employers now, like, if they get three days off, they will totally buy stuff? Well, you know, uh, first of all, I think uh, the working world in general has changed, right? The pandemic has appended the way we work. Uh, It has changed workplaces. It has changed companies. So uh, authorities and employers around the world are rethinking the way they, they put their employees to work. And one way is to give them one additional day of weekend, basically, or, you know, when, when, when they want to take Monday or Wednesday off, that's also fine as well. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean these workers will output less. Uh, the CEO of A1 told me they, these, his workers don't necessarily 
just just cut a full day of work, but they work smarter and just as efficiently. So, you know, things are changing. And, uh, yeah, this may just be, you know, a first uh, first tendency of, of a fort-like moment that you cited earlier, Matt. So, Stefan, it seems like maybe there's some cultural issues here. Perhaps some folks in Europe might be more open to it. Maybe some uh, The French, for sure, right? Yeah. um, You know, I mean, they take longer. You know, we Americans, we look over at some of these Europeans and we say, boy, they take these nice long vacations and they, uh, you know, and it's just – Perhaps they don't work as hard. There's a, per- a perception here in the U.S. that maybe some oh. European countries don't work as hard as the Americans. Well, the French, right? The, yeah, that's <laughs> specifically the French because the Germans obviously work hard. Have you driven a Mercedes lately? I yes. Mean, <laughs> yeah, come on. I, I mean, so Stefan, is there? Is, do you think there's going to be some cultural geographic issues? Uh, well, first of all, uh, th- surely there will be cultural and, and regional differences. If you only think of Let's say uh, Jack Ma, uh, the co-founder of, of Alibaba, who sort of hails the 996 world work culture in China, that, that, that grueling schedule that has secured a success for many uh, tech companies in Asia. Uh, you know, it'll, it'll take a while until it will catch on over there, and it may uh, take a while until it catches on in some other countries. But, you know, this is not an isolated trend uh, in Europe or in a certain country. We're, we're talking about uh, New Zealand, Japan, Spain, uh, even companies in the U.S. have, have uh, tried this. So I think uh, it's, it's uh, not necessarily isolated to just one region. All right, Stefan, thanks so much. Stefan Nicola there with the most read story of the day, yeah. um, an appetizing, titillating four-day work week. I don't really think it's ever going to go down um, globally, Paul, it doesn't seem like something that's going to happen in the U.S. Yeah, I don't um, know. I think what it, it's changed here is technology. I guess what we've learned during this pandemic with technology, you can be as productive or more productive in, in some cases with a much more flexible work environment. You don't need to be in a physical office for some roles. Uh, and, and again, as long as the productivity is there, then I would think management's the C-suite would be open to some discussions. So I suspect mm. that there might be some changes coming along here that might be a little bit more permanent. Uh, I could buy it. To- I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. Yeah. But look, I get – so you and I work for the same company. I get 35 days of vacation every year. Yeah. What do you get? Uh, what am I t- – well, yeah, you're, you're in Europe. I get 20. See, that is (laughs) – I want to move back to the U.S. so badly because I miss football and I miss pickup trucks and I want, you know, a big backyard and and homecoming and, you know, school sports. But I do not want (laughs) to only have 20 days of vacation a year. That sounds awful. And most Americans, I would argue, don't even take it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.